1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: And we're here for you and we want to answer your questions. So send them to us at PW Radio at PublishersWeekly.com or tweet them to at Pub Radio. That's Pub W-K-L-Y Radio. Today we get to talk with Bruce Filer He's the author of The Secrets of Happy Families. He's going to tell us how to make family life easier and happier for everyone. And our own Mark Rotella, just back from France, will give us the rundown on the Paris Cookbook Fair.
0: But first, we've got a sneak preview of next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan.
1: So I'm very excited that we're going to get to break the news to Bruce that The Secrets of Happy Families launches at number 18 on our hardcover nonfiction bestseller list.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy that we'll have someone who, uh, who debuts on a list on our show today. A book about the secrets of happy families, the subtitles and improve your mornings, rethink family dinner, fight smarter, go out and play, and much, much more. And he's also the author of uh, uh, other, you know, he's a New York Times bestselling list, uh, uh, author of several books, um, many religion books. Walking the Bible. Walking the Bible, right.
1: That is it. That's what we get for talking without our notes in front of us. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Anyway, I'm very much looking forward to our chat with him coming up later today. Uh, And in the meantime, we've got a couple of other things. Uh, We have the new James Patterson Mm -hmm. debuting at number one, as he tends to do. That's uh, Alex Cross Run.
0: And now is that a series?
1: Um, yeah, the Alex Cross series has been ongoing for quite some time. Yeah. And it's, just, it's a thriller series. They're very reliable. Yeah. You know, they're, it's, uh, it's the comfort food of, of thriller reading. Right. You, know, you, you right. pick one up, you know exactly what you're going to get. And, uh, and And he, he has his formula, and he has his fans, and he just he hits all the sweet spots to satisfy them.
0: Oh fantastic
1: We've also got some interesting books uh, coming out this week that we wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, top on my list is Dreams and Shadows by c robert cargill this This is an interesting mm-hmm. fantasy novel uh, that has definitely a, a real literary sensibility. And uh, it, it follows the stories of two boys mm-hmm. uh, who have encounters with the supernatural when they're quite young. Um, one of them is actually ab- abducted. He's a, a changeling of sorts. Oh. Uh, and uh, he, he goes off to live with uh, fairy goblin crossbreeds. And uh, the other encounters a djinn, a genie, in the, mm-hmm. the woods behind his house. Uh, and as they grow up their their journeys and their lives intersect in various ways much as right. the the real world intersects with the fantasy world oh
0: wow well um and let me take a look here at our uh non-fiction list and basically what i'm finding is still the similar you know same books on diet and fitness right. um it, it's we have shred the revolutionary diet we have the Melt method, which is a breakthrough uh, diet. This this is debuting on our list at number five, by Sue Hitzman. Then there's also Slim for Life. So we're we're still seeing these these books that have come out post uh, New Year's for the resolutions. Yeah, I was going to but- say
1: it's been eight or nine weeks now that that we've had. Diet books all over the place, but they're not slowing down. They're not
0: slowing down. They keep coming out, and uh, we also have uh, the Dash Diet Weight Loss Solution, and uh, a few others later, you know, further on our list. That one is uh, debuting at number thirteen by uh, Grant Central Publishing. <laughs> But all this is to show how much discussion there is on what we eat. So aside from a cookbook or cooking perspective, this is how we eat. And there's a book that is coming out, Michael Moss, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Coming out uh, this week from Random House, and in our review we say the Pulitzer-winning New York Times reporter Moss explained the two-faced science of salt, sugar, and fat, which impart tantalizing tastes and luscious mouthfeel that light up the same neural uh, circuits that narcotics do, like wow. Coca-Cola. And so he argues that uh, he, he said these are these are the these three ingredients are what uh, are, are addictive. And this is what manufacturers are, are counting on, you know, on on humans' addiction to these. And he travels various processing plants and, and manufacturers. And he comes away of seeing, realizing that even the people who work there, after seeing what goes in, don't eat their own products
1: well i i feel like that's that's maybe significant
0: yeah right sure sure now, when,
1: when my mother was at the the french culinary institute i oh, i feel yeah. like the the secrets they taught her for making your food taste better was always yeah you know, more butter more sugar more salt so, yes exactly it's uh that's definitely not just a processed foods thing that's something that's been around a long time uh, that we've that we've known about for a right. long time as this is how we make foods taste better and it's also how we make people want the food that we're making
0: yes exactly and and I I think all of that is fine in moderation, and sure. I think the problem comes when it gets processed with all these unnatural ingredients, and it, we have our body just can't digest them. We we call this book. The result of this book is a mouth-watering, gut-wrenching look at the food we hate to love. So, and that's a review of a book we liked pretty well.
1: I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're hitting some of the highlights of next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list. You heard it here first, and also talking about some interesting books that are coming out this week.
0: We also have a history of future cities. This is by Daniel Brooke from Norton. And these are portraits of St. Petersburg, Russia, Bombay, India, Shanghai, China, Dubai. And in here, he illustrates three centuries of revolutionary urban development and globalizing impulses. And it seems to be that the history of cities is kind of been in publishing realm for the for the last year we've seen two not one not two but three books on Detroit Mm -hmm. a city that was once great then fell into disrepair still is there but uh, these three books are kind of taking an optimistic look at Detroit or at least showing how a city like that might come back or could come back and so we see a lot of these urban histories that kind of show us through through the filter uh on society uh globally mm-hmm. and that is one of the books we have here uh other than that on the uh, bestseller list uh you know we still have uh at number 11 it's been on there for eight weeks uh actually more than that Terry Francona the Red Sox years, the former manager of the Red Sox so we're still seeing some some books um I haven't seen any of the sports books come up that I thought might have but um that's basically what we have in nonfiction.
1: Well, it's a slow spring so far. Yes. Yeah. Not nothing. No big surprises. I think what we're right. seeing is a, a lot of the same books hitting the bestseller list that we kind of expect to. So we have you know, Danielle Steele at the top of the romance sure. list, um, yeah. and Fifty Shades of Grey is still hanging on there. Still there. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's been knocked down a couple of pegs, but all three Fifty Shades books and the Fifty Shades Omnibus are still consistently selling, which is. Very impressive.
0: Yeah, this is, this is true. And, and on the nonfiction, Bill O'Reilly's Killing Kennedy is still there and holding strong, as is uh, the Barefoot Contessa, which had been going for weeks neck to neck at number one, number two spot. Mm-hmm. And those are still up there, still selling well. Uh, people are still buying them.
1: So I, I I feel like the lesson that we've taken away from you know, doing the show for the last few months is mm. that when we look at the bestseller list, we tend to look at each other and go, eh, no surprises. Right. Yeah. You know, the <laughs> the idea of the the sudden bestseller, the bestseller that comes out of nowhere, I th- I think that really happens even more rarely. Than we might think. Usually, the bestsellers are you know, the people who already have bestsellers right. and uh, you know, the people who already have established fan bases. And it's pretty rare for someone to rocket to the top.
0: Though, though, exciting when that does happen. Oh, absolutely. And that's, and that's when you know, we see the rare debut. Uh, you know, like we're, you know, we're talking with Bruce Filer and that's coming in at at 18. It's pretty exciting when that happens.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: And next up, we are going to be talking with Bruce Feiler about his brand new and already best selling book, The Secrets of Happy Families. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back.
0: Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got Bruce Feiler on the line. He's the author of The Secrets of Happy Families. And Bruce, I want to be the first to let you know that you are debuting on our uh, bestseller list next week at 18. Thanks so much for joining Gosh, us. what great news. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Did oh, you call sure. every week with that news?
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. We, we wish we could. We, yeah. it, it's always nice to get to share something like that with uh, with one of our guests, so congratulations. Yeah, and
0: uh, you have this information before even your publicists uh, do, so... I know, normally <laughs> you get from them. I mean, I have
2: right. to say it really, I've been doing this a long time, as you know, and it just, it's <laughs> been this amazing experience. The book went back to press four times in the first day. I mean, it's just... Wow. Clear. It's put much of the wow. book in the Amazon Top 10, and it's just clearly... It must be touching something, and it's, it's thrilling to be a part of.
0: Well, it seems as if many of your books have, have, uh, have, have touched this and have, you know, have, have become bestsellers. So, um, congratulations once again. So, you have written nearly a dozen books now, maybe 10 or 11. What made you decide to write this one? I mean, was there, I don't know, a specific moment with your wife and kids that made you think you had to address these issues?
2: Well, a couple things converged. There actually was a bit of a moment in that my family gathers every August in an extended family reunion in Georgia, on Tybee Island, Georgia, where I grew up. One of my daughters is named Tybee. I have identical twin daughters, as you know, that they're almost a Eden and Tybee. And we were gathering and just everybody had their stresses. Our girls had gotten to an age where we were through the sippy cups and diapers and we were ready to build a family culture, but we didn't really know how to do it. I mean, how do you teach kids values in a 24-7 world. How do you teach them what really matters and and what's important to your family? My sister has older kids. They have their own problems. And then we basically had a bit of a blow up at dinner where my nephew was texting and I knew I shouldn't say anything, but I asked him to put the (laughs) phone away. And kaboom, my sister snapped at me. Don't parent my child. And my dad pointed out that it was my daughters who were balancing spoons on their noses. And (laughs) <laughs> my my mother, the grandmother, said none of the grandkids had any manners. And later that night, my dad called me to his bedside, and he had this quiver in his voice I had never heard before. And he said, our family's falling apart. And I just mm. said instinctual, oh, no, it's not. We're stronger than ever. But as I lay in bed that night, I wondered, I mean, were we slipping into this realm of dysfunction? What is the secret sauce that makes some families work or happy or resilient? So that was one desire. And, and the second frustration that I had was I was just a little tired of what I call the family improvement industry. Mm-hmm. Parents are in this straitjacket that the only ideas that we can implement must come from shrinks or self-help gurus. And I just found, I just, I just, they weren't for me or I found the answers really tired. While in every other area of life in Silicon Valley and Corporate America and sports and the military. There's all these incredible new ideas about making teams and groups work smoothly. And I just wanted to go into those worlds, find out what those parents had taken from their own lives and were testing out with those kids and bring them home and test them out with mine.
1: So you've talked about creating a family culture, and that's not a phrase that I think I've ever heard before. So tell me a little bit about what you mean by that.
2: What I mean by that is... We all know about the, the biological clock, right? We all are erasing the biological clock to have our children. But there's another biological clock that we never really talk about, which is the fact that uh, after a number of years, whatever it is, 14, 15, 16, 17, our kids are going to go kind of move away from us and head out into the world. And you have – there's a very narrow window in there. It's probably about a decade. I, I call it from the first step to the first kiss. From potty mm-hmm. training to the prom, right, right, right. there's a kind of decade in there where you have the opportunity to to connect that family and to make that bond with your kids and between the kids and their other siblings, and we don't spend a lot of time working on that. I mean, that's just been one of the astonishing things. Even if you think about all the happiness books, right? We're we're ten years into the positive psychology movement. All the happiness literature, most of them are about making yourself happier. Not that many are about making the family happier. Yet we know the family is incredibly important. So kind of one of the things that has driven me through this whole project was we have our jobs. We work on those. We have our hobbies. We work on those. We have our bodies, our relationships. We work on those. We don't spend that much time working on our families. And I wanted to know, you know, what are some things that you can do to make your family function better? And it turns out there's a lot of new ideas. You pick a couple. You can make your family happier.
0: I'm Mark Rotel and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Bruce Filer about the secrets of happy families. Bruce, for this book you interviewed people from, I don't know, many walks of life who have succeeded in, in creating this balance of a daily family life and and you seem to have taken a different approach uh to this book where where it's it's autobiographical but also you're you're interviewing others those who you know maybe you wouldn't think of who's who's successfully done this like a computer engineer with Asperger's on how he created a morning ritual how did you decide to shape your book that way and how did you find these people
2: well you were kind enough earlier to mention that I have been doing this for a number of years mm-hmm. and Uh, I I wrote, uh, uh, as you know, Walking the Bible and and a series of books about religion. And kind of a hallmark of those books and the hallmark of my writing life now going back for 25 years is that I'm not an expert. Okay, And so with the religion books in particular, I think I didn't know this going in, but now that I have done this for a long time in religion, I think that one of the reasons perhaps that those books were able to reach the audience that they did was, I, I wasn't up on a pulpit, wagging my finger, telling people what to do. I was out in the pews or, frankly, mm-hmm. in the pickup trucks where a lot of are, people are because they're not in the pews saying, how does this relate to me? Mm-hmm. And that really carried over to when I began to work on families. I'm not an expert, right? And so I'm not telling you this is a solution. I'm a frustrated parent. And mm-hmm. I went out looking for the solutions my wife was very open to this god bless her but she (laughs) did put a red line in the sand and she said i don't want theory i want other families that are doing things show me people who are making it work and then bring me the ideas here and so you mentioned i will start with that you mentioned this family i opened the book in in hidden springs idaho with this incredible family that i met because they had written about their experience trying to deal with the chaos of their lives. And I found them, and I went to see them. And basically, you know, I thought when I became a parent, okay, I'm a dad. I'm going to set a few rules. We're going to follow them. It's all going to work. Well, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> it turns out you can't anticipate every problem. Like, right. our lives are changing so fast. The parents are moving around. The kids go through phases very, very quickly. So they turned not to their friends or to their relatives when their life got very chaotic. As the software engineer, David, his wife, Eleanor, said to me, They have four kids, right? One was Asperger, one a GHD, one was tutoring lacrosse, one was practicing math. I mean, it was crazy. And she said, I was trying the whole love them and everything would work out philosophy, but it wasn't working. So they turned to David's workplace, where people have been studying how to reduce chaos Mm. for years. And one of the things that they implemented was this system. It's called Agile. We've now done it in my family for three (laughs) years. I actually have a TED Talk on this that went up. Uh, just the other day that has gone viral in this world and you adapt all the time so they create a morning checklist where you have the kids check off their own chores and the hallmark of this is we have a weekly family meeting now where we ask three questions what worked in our family this week what didn't work and what can we improve on in the week ahead (laughs) and here's the key we have our kids work with us to pick their own rewards and punishments. And cutting-edge research shows into the brain that kids who plan their own schedules and make their own work and evaluate their own progress actually, guys, they're building up their prefrontal cortex and taking greater control over their lives. So the point is you can't just have your kids say, okay, you're 16, now go make decisions. You've got to practice as early as you can. You've got to have a system where you can change all the time.
1: So so Mark is chuckling because I've been sitting here nodding my head and grinning. I know lots of people who are are agile programmers um, and and who use those techniques in their work life. Um, But I've I feel like that that tends to be based around this concept of a a release cycle where you're always updating the software and you do it frequently rather than making an update every year or so. You make an update every six weeks or so. So how are you adapting that for family life? Are you just looking for things, constantly looking for things that you can improve?
2: Well, or things that are not going wrong. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, the key idea in Agile is rather than, say, you go off and when you're building it, say, design me a search engine and come back in two years, well, the world will have changed. You say, go design me an element and come back in a week and let's evaluate it and discuss it and adapt in real time. And then once you're using it, you're constantly adapting. Well, my favorite line of parenting comes from my friend, Justin, who had four kids in six years. And he said, with children, everything is a phase, even Mm -hmm. the good parts. I mean, that's the reality. Just when kids stop teething they start having tantrums, just when they stop needing our help taking a bath, They need our help dealing with online bullying. The point Mm -hmm. is there's a constant flow, especially if you have more than one child or a number of children or mom and dad are both trading off work obligations. And what what this allows you to do, in essence, is to succeed and fail quickly. So you try things. This week in our family, for example, we're working on overreacting. I'm -hmm. sure no other parent has that problem. Overreacting (laughs) and listening, those are the two things. And we have our kids... They said, "Okay, well, here's our reward. We get five minutes of overreacting a week, and if we do that, have fewer than five minutes, then we get a sleepover. More than 15 minutes, we got to do one push up for every minute over 15." <laughs> well, I never would have picked that. Who, who knows what motivates or or kids to do what they're doing these days? Right, right. But then that my daughter, other daughter's sister, uh, said. Is that one five-minute overreaction, or is that 10-30-second overreaction? (laughs) Right there, as a parent, that's a successful encounter. Because (laughs) she's thinking, she is engaging. The word in business, my wife works with entrepreneurs, and the word in business of the moment is co-creation. And that Mm -hmm. is, in effect, what we're doing. We are co-creating our family, not only with our kids, but by the way, like a lot of parents, my wife and I have different parenting styles. Mm-hmm. I tend to be more controlling. She tends to be more forgiving. This allows us to accommodate our differences, bring them into the process, and we're all talking. That's one of the, so basically, to me, one of the big three themes I learned about happy families while working on this book is they adapt all the time.
0: I'm Mark Rotella, you're listening to Publisher's Weekly Radio. We're talking with Bruce Feiler about the secrets of happy families. Now, Bruce, I, I have a 7-year-old and a 4-year-old, and you stress the importance of family meals, but you realize that it doesn't always have to be dinner. Uh, tell us more about that.
2: Well, if there's one thing that parents have been told in recent years is family dinner is really important for children, and mm-hmm. there's, in fact, a lot of research that supports that. But here's the problem. It doesn't work with many of our schedules. A third of us aren't doing it. My wife doesn't even come home till 6.30 at night. Right. But dig deeper into the research, and it's very relieving for parents. It turns out there's only 10 minutes of conversation in any mealtime. The rest is taken up with take your elbows off the table and pass the ketchup. <laughs> the right. research shows you can take that 10 minutes of bonding time and move it to any time of the day and have the same benefits. So you can have family breakfast or meet for a bedtime snack if your kids are older. Even one meal on the weekend can have... Benefits because the point is, it's the connection that really matters. And in many ways, what you talk about is even more important than what you eat. We tested about two dozen kind of conversation, dinner table conversation kinds of games, and and I parcelled them out one for each day of the week. I call them the Hunger Games in my book. <laughs> and you know, like you can teach your kids a word a day. This has been working very effectively. Kids have to learn three thousand words a year. We bring a newspaper or a magazine. Actually, catalogs are great because of all the strange color names in catalogs these days. Uh-huh. And we teach our girls a word a day. And then it turned out that they have all this slang that we didn't know. And so they've enjoyed teaching it to us. But my favorite, this is my favorite single thing that I learned in The Secrets of Happy Families. Grew out of a guy who studies family dinner and family rituals in Atlanta. Researchers at Emory gave kids a do-you-know test. Do you know where your grandparents were born, Mm -hmm. where your parents went to high school, a relative, an aunt or something who had an illness that they overcame? Mm -hmm. Kids who knew more about their family history had a greater sense of self-confidence and a greater idea that they could control their own lives. It was the single biggest predictor of a child's well-being because, as the researcher told me, kids have a sense that they're part of a longer hit family narrative, part of a big Story that's been gone on for years. So, you want to spend time telling kids the positive moments of your family's history, but maybe even more important, also the negative moments and how you overcame them so that when kids face their inevitable challenges, they will push through and get to the other side.
1: So, does that apply to um, adopted and foster kids? I realize this is going a little bit far afield, but I'm, I'm just
2: I've been asked that question a lot, interestingly enough, because we do have all these different kinds of families now. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing – I actually went back and checked the, the, the study recently. There's nothing in it that says it has to be biological. Right. The, the idea is that maybe it's even more relevant if you are, have an adopted child or if you are a divorced family where the challenges are maybe front and center for the children, showing them that other family members have overcome challenges – with this idea of grit and resilience its so hot in, in kind of child-rearing circles these days. The point is you want to be talking. This is the second big theme in, in many ways that I encountered in my book is that families that are high-functioning, they talk a lot. And they don't just have meaningful conversations as important as those are, but they also are constantly telling stories about the family, what it means, what the values are, the military term for this as you know, the last chapter of my book talks about how the military has built up unit you know, mm-hmm. cohesion and how those can apply to an extended family. The military term for this is sense-making. You want to constantly talk to your children about what it means to be part of your family.
0: How do you get your kids to sit down at the table in the first place?
2: Well, with the family meeting that we do, you know, here's my pro tip, we put the allowance at the end. so that uh-huh. to <laughs> I
0: love it. It's okay, all about great. incentivization. Great, great.
2: I think the kids are hungry. I I think that you you have to say, you know what, screen time, that that may be appropriate for someone over your age, but you have to have time that we're together as a family because this is really the headline, guys. Parents should spend less time worrying about the bad times, more time building up the good times. That's what the research shows. If you make these positive memories, they'll outweigh the negative ones, and you can make your family happier.
1: I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, and we are talking with Bruce Feiler about his new book, The Secrets of Happy Families. Uh, now, a lot of this is about parenting. Uh, Mark has kids. I don't. Uh, but there's also some stuff in there that's, that's applicable to folks like me, uh, like how couples can argue productively. So tell me a little bit about that.
2: My wife and I were having what I refer to as the 7:42 fight. We would put the girls down. She'd come into my office. And then we discussed really the detritus of our lives, right, mm-hmm. who's picking, who's dropping up the dry cleaning, who's picking up the shin guards. And we were having this argument one night about what we were going to serve at the girl's birthday party. And she just stormed out and said, there must be a better way. I want to go watch Modern Family. And I was thinking, okay, so who are the best people on the planet to deal with conflict? And two weeks later, I was sitting in a hotel at Cambridge taking a three-day course from the folks at the Harvard Negotiation Project. Hmm. These are the guys who deal with Israeli-Palestinian peace talks, Northern Irish peace talks, general right. strikes. And I figured if they know, and this is really kind of hits at a larger point that I've been trying to do in this entire book, which is negotiation studies didn't exist when Dr. Spock was around. Right. But now we know a lot about negotiation, and I met with these guys, and they kind of talked about... My wife and I and, and, and how we have our conflict, and we changed a lot of things. First of all, the research shows the most stressful time in a family is between 6 and 8. So we have vowed never to have a difficult conversation in that window,
1: mm-hmm. that everybody
2: change, eat, spend time with the kids if their kid's around, or just decompress, read the mail, whatever it might be. Two, we changed where we sit. I had this environmental psychologist go through my house, and she took a look at where we were having this fight, and she couldn't believe it because I was sitting at a hard – at my desk. There's all this power equipment like my right. computers and uh, uh, telephone, all that kind of stuff. My wife was in this old IKEA chair that was about eight inches lower, and she was like, this is the worst place <laughs> to have this conversation in the whole house because I was filling in the power position. My wife was cross-armed and resentful. Right. And also this research shows that if you're sitting at a hard surface on a hard surface – you'll be more rigid. If you're on a cushioned surface, you'll be more accommodating. So we've now moved to the living room where we're on the same eye level and the same posture. Mm -hmm. Or if it's really tense, we will do it on a window seat that we have in our bedroom that happens to be cushioned, and we sit side by side. Mm -hmm. Even with our kids, we now do this. Just last weekend, we went through their report cards, and we did it side by side. Because if you're side by side, the research shows you're more likely to collaborate Mm -hmm. across you're more likely to be confrontational. And, and again, this point, these ideas may not be for everyone. One of the reasons I put 200 ideas in this book was because it's clear nobody could do them all. Right. You right. pick three, you'll have a happier family. But the larger point is there's all these ideas out there, but they are ghettoized in their own worlds and they're cut off from parents. And I've just said, let's bring all these ideas. Let's flood them into families. Let's let the best ideas win.
1: I Actually, I have friends who do something similar. They have an agreement that if they're having a fight, one of them must be standing in the bathtub. And um, as soon as they're, you know, like a voice is raised, the other one goes up oh, into the tub. And, and it, it sort of breaks the tension just even having to go into another place, plus you know the silliness of standing in a bathtub while attempting to hold an And by to, the way, if you, if you turn the water argument. on, I, I don't know how long
2: <laughs> – uh, mine takes a long time. But the research shows all the best stuff comes out in the fight in the first three minutes, and then mm-hmm. you keep repeating yourself. So if you turn the water on, maybe it takes three minutes to fill out, You can say, "Fine." <laughs> oh, the the, the fight can only last as long as the water comes in. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: That makes perfect sense. Yeah. You also you mentioned religion earlier, and yeah. uh, obviously you've you've written a couple of books about religion. Is that a big part of this
2: book? There is a chapter on it, and and one of the things I vowed when I set out was that I was going to confront whatever I found, even if it was uncomfortable. And and one of the realities in fifty years of research is there is a. Connection: People who identify themselves as being religious also identify themselves as being happier. It doesn't say there's a correlation, and when you dig down into the research, it's very interesting. Religion has been, or a moral code, or some sort of value system, has been on almost every list that's ever been created of what happy families have in common. Going back to the smattering of these lists that began in the 1960s. but what the most recent research shows is it doesn't matter obviously, which belief system you have, it doesn't matter how often you tend religious services. It doesn't even matter if you believe in God. What it shows is that it matters that you belong to a larger community. And people who are involved in religious organizations, there's a kind of sweet spot of, if you know 10 people, that that has showed that those people are more attached. And one thing we've learned in the first generation of positive psychology is that Relationships are key to well-being. Happiness in almost every measure is other people. So I think you don't necessarily have to be a practicing religious person, but if you have a moral code belief system that you are conveying to your kids, uh, it will, the research suggests, uh, help make you uh, Tighter as a group. I'm
0: Mark Rattell, you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Bruce Feiler about his new book, just out last week, but on the Publishers Weekly bestseller list uh, The Secrets of Happy Families. But right now, we're talking about his uh, previous books. And I'd like to know, you know, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Walking the Bible, uh, Journey Through Land, uh, Through the Five Books of Moses, which was a New York Times bestseller. And what inspired you to write that book?
2: It was interesting, a a similar connection. A book came out in in 2001, and I was frustrated. I had gotten to the point I was a writer. I felt like I needed to be more conversant with the Bible. I took the Bible off my shelf. I put it by my bed, and it sat there unread for two years, gathering dust and making me feel guiltier. And then I went to visit an old friend who was living in Jerusalem, And on my first day, she took me to this promenade overlooking the city and said, over there is this controversial neighborhood. And over there is the rock where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And I was like, really? These are real places that you can touch and (laughs) visit and feel? It really had never occurred to me. And so the crazy way I've lived my life, you mentioned I've written all these books. I wrote a book about being a circus clown, about being a student at Oxford and Cambridge, and teaching English in Japan. It was my first book, Learning Mm -hmm. to Bow. 22 years ago. Oh. And I thought, well, here's an idea. What if I travel along the route and read the book along the way? Actually, I mean, part of what I said, and I used to not say this in public, but was, what if I joined the Bible as if it were the circus? <laughs> Try to become <laughs> a part of it. <laughs> Meet the people. And so I spent a year, it was much harder than I thought, mm. and I climbed Mount Ararat looking for Noah's Ark, and I crossed the Red Sea, and and climb out and climb Mount Nebo where Moses and I died, and I tasted manna. Later, I went back and and, and shot a TV series for Public Broadcasting that aired in 2006. Mm-hmm. And that book also touched this nerve. It spent a year and a half on the New York Times bestseller list. It was certainly on the PW list for well over a year. Mm-hmm. I, I remember quite vividly. Mm-hmm. And I, again. I wasn't telling people what to believe or to think. I was saying I was frustrated. I went out trying to find, are these stories real? Are they not real? Where did they happen? Are they relevant to contemporary life? And offered people the opportunity to come along, and it turned out that a lot of people were asking those questions.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's true. And uh, you also uh, wrote a book, the most recent one, I guess it was maybe a few years ago, uh, The Council of Dads, My Daughters, My Illness, and the Men Who Could Be Me. This was writing about your uh, cancer uh, uh, illness, your battle with cancer, and then your survival after that. Was it like writing that book? I mean, it seems like each of your books is, was an exploration of, of something unsettling in your life.
2: Well, that's interesting. I, I would uh, let me pick up that last sentence, and I'll work my way back to walking the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, part of me does. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, as a fifth-generation Jew in the American South. I've always felt connected to the South. I love the storytelling and the family tradition, but I felt somewhat apart from it because I was Jewish. I felt a part of the Jewish tradition. I like the family and storytelling, but somewhat apart from the American Jewish tradition because I was in the South. And I think that if, if there is one theme that kind of links all of the books that I've written over these many years now, it is this sort of being a part of something but being apart from it at the same time and ultimately trying to bring those two worlds together. Abraham, my book that followed Walking the Bible, was about Abraham as the shared ancestor of Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and it was about this conversation that people were desperate to have after 9-11 of, can we get along, and about bringing people together. And when I was diagnosed with cancer in June of 2008, and my daughters were three years old, and uh, uh, just to remind you, it was cancer of my left femur, so here I was, the walking Mm -hmm. guy from Walking the Bible, and suddenly I was facing the the prospect that I would never walk again. Mm -hmm. But even worse, I would not see my children grow up. And so I reached out to six men. And again, bringing people together, I asked these six men to form this Council of Dads and to, in effect, be my voice. Here I'm a writer. Voice matters to me to be my voice for my daughters. And it's now five years later. I'm cancer-free. But these men are still in our lives, and they have, in effect, formed this kind of new family. They're not exactly family. They're more than friends, but they are this additional family. And one thing that I learned from that process that's so deeply relevant, it was relevant to your question uh, about if you don't have children, what is your role here, Mm -hmm. is that these guys are, are, in effect, this extended family, and you cannot have too many adults who love a child. One of the reasons that I chose not just to write a parenting book with The Secrets of Happy Families, but to write about extended families was to talk about what is the role of grandparents, what is, what's the mm-hmm. role of aunts or uncles who may not have children, what is the role of a family reunion where my book ends, because I do think in a core that I am about bringing people together, it's, a, it's not the kind of thing you think about when you're writing it, but later looking back and answering questions like these, I've been more reflective about it recently. So I do think that's the theme that, that connects a lot of my work that would seem to be very separate from one another.
1: No, that makes perfect sense. And and it's wonderful that you're so inclusive of all kinds of families, and including extended families.
2: Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that the definition of the family has changed. Blended families, adoptive families, nuclear families that live in separate houses, divorced families that live in the same house. You, you just can't imagine it. But the family is incredibly important to us. And all the research shows that that if you have a family that gets along, it's going to increase the confidence and skill level and well-being of the individuals in that family. And so that really is my message in this book. You don't need a big scheme. You don't need a grand plan. You don't need to reorient everything that you do. You need to take small steps and accumulate small wins. And to me, that's the biggest lesson of all. What's the secret to a happy family? Try.
1: Well thank you so much. We've been talking with Bruce Feiler, author of The Secrets of Happy Families. And it's available right now in your local bookstore. Bruce, thank you for joining us and sharing a little bit of your wisdom.
2: What a pleasure, and thank you for sharing the good news.
1: Absolutely. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. This is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: And next up, Mark is going to tell us about his fabulous trip to France for the Paris Cookbook Festival. So stay tuned. I'm Rose Fox. And
0: I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, Mark here has just come back from France where he was at the Paris Cookbook Fair, or as they say, the Festival du Livre Culinaire.
0: Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best. I
1: do my best. So, so tell me a little bit about this.
0: Well, this is, uh, I think, the 10th year that this has been going on. But this is the first year that they moved the venue from, it was, uh, in, it, as, as the title says, uh, in Paris, this one, they moved the entire fair to uh, under the Louvre Museum. And it was under the carousel underneath the pyramid. And it's where the pyramid goes down. Uh, you, know, the, you can see the pyramid from the top and then down below.
1: So it's, it's, that's the giant glass pyramid that's, that acts like a skylight.
0: That's exactly, exactly. And down below is a, uh, a shopping center, mostly for tourists. And here is where they have this, this uh, conference uh, once a year. And it's a conference of international cookbooks, so cookbooks published in I want to say forty, fifty countries. Wow! And, and they, lots of different languages, I imagine. Lots of different languages, uh, books that are you know in, translated in different languages. And the one thing that I saw from nearly all of these is is the design quality of the books. And you have some that are are just just absolutely gorgeous, uh, with lush photos. And you have ones that you know these are the ones that you can you know they're kind of like armchair traveling cookbooks Mm -hmm. uh, that take you into say Brazil into the the heart of Brazilian cooking or or maybe it's a Brazilian writer writing for a German publishing house about uh, Brazilian cooking Mm -hmm. but then you also have a lot of uh, how-to books a lot of uh, I think it seems like some of the books that are really popular here about quick and easy it seems as if Americans aren't the only one who lead busy lives. And books coming out of France, out of Belgium, uh, out of Germany, out of Norway are all kind of trending towards this quick and easy book. But even so, those cookbooks are done with with really nice style, a lot of attention to detail.
1: And um, I know in the states there's a lot of focus on diet books and how to have the the right diet to lose weight or gain weight or prevent cancer or treat heart disease or what have you. Uh, was that also a focus there, or this is really just about good cooking?
0: Now this, that's a great question, Rose. Because I, in my mind, you know, with with all the cookbooks that I handle here, I often think of this as uh, an American—I don't want to say fad, but a dilemma—in that we aren't necessarily eating the the right foods or or we don't have the right diet or maybe we just have a lot of disposable income on our hands where we can try all these maybe you know quote-unquote fad diets but really when it comes down to it people here are eating healthy I mean it's marked by two articles in the New York Times today on on following a Mediterranean diet and and millions of dollars in research that have gone into kind of creating this diet and following this diet. Well, over there, I find that people have had the same concerns. And in fact, for some American publishers, I mean, there a lot of international you know, foreign cookbook houses are looking towards the U.S. to come out with, with these kinds of cookbooks, be it gluten-free, mm-hmm. vegan, and, and even now raw foods are getting bigger in Europe and, mm-hmm. and parts of uh, Asia. I, I see that that's coming about. Now too, and and also, with the same thing, with busy family lives, you start doing a little more uh, or, or work lives, I should say. Whether or not you have you know uh, kids, people are working longer hours. They're they're relying on restaurants and takeout food, so people are gaining weight and not making their own decisions as to what goes into the food that they eat.
1: I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And right now, my co-host Mark Rotella, also a Publishers Weekly editor, is giving us the news from the Paris Cookbook Fair. So, tell me a little bit about the experience of walking around. Is it is it a, a big fair? Are we talking dozens or hundreds or thousands of people?
0: Yeah, that's you know, it's about. Uh, I, I want to say it's about a hundred presenters, mm-hmm. so so about that many booths. You uh, go into this this nicely done hall. It's like a marble hall. With a uh, with a, a beautiful staircase going up to bookshelves of books, a large room. You have a cafe to one side, and this isn't just any kind of cafe here. You have high end quiches for twenty dollars, or Ooh. I'm sorry, maybe like seventeen or fifteen euro. Right. But they're really good. I mean, great sandwiches, nicely done coffee, uh, uh, wine. You have uh, uh, in the middle of this cafe, you have book presentations of, uh, say, a, a, a sake book that's published in France, and you have uh, the the uh, publisher and the editor being interviewed there, handing out samples of the sake. Wow! Uh, you have a uh, a kitchen that's open to the public, almost. Uh, well, I mean, uh, open to the uh, to the room almost like a uh, kitchen on TV so there are chairs set there but there are also cameras right on the food so you can see the food as the uh, cooks are demonstrating it and then you have several aisles of presenters, of publishers who are there and for the most part they're all walking around looking at each other's you know books, seeing what other countries are going. And I think for a, a gourmand or a, or a true food lover I, I think this is a fascinating way to, to look at the foods of other countries while still staying in the in the same room i mean you have uh some some publishers will bring in foods from the cookbook that you can try right there at the booth Mm -hmm. uh and then on the other end of the room are uh stages for uh talks uh and there are scheduled a a talk every hour or two talks every hour from 10 till about five o'clock
1: so it's a packed schedule and, and it went yeah. on two or three days?
0: Yeah, this was for uh, the conference runs Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I think the first two, first day it's just for professionals and then they open it up to the general public for about 30 euro uh, for the uh, for the rest of the year. Oh, uh, wow.
1: Well, that sounds like quite a bargain with all those samples. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you get exactly, you 30 yeah. euros and yeah. you go wandering around. Yeah
0: yeah well, and this is the wonderful thing about where this this was uh hosted uh, it was right there in the louvre and it was i mean if even if you didn 't want to eat at the cafe, you could easily just walk out for you know five ten minute walk go to any any nearby restaurant duck right. in you know some touristy stuff you may want to stay away from that, but just a couple blocks away from the museum are plenty of restaurants, coffee mm-hmm. shops, great little uh pastry shops. And I, I came across something. I was I was really eager to find these uh, kitchen knives. You know, uh, uh, table knives uh, made by, you know, that you see on the restaurants of uh, any French table, the kind of uh, folding knives. Mm-hmm. And I was told that they, there was this uh, place that would sell them maybe about five, six blocks away from the Louvre. And sure enough, it was the De La Rinne, um shop, and it was a three story, uh, tightly packed store of all the kitchen appliances you could want. From, wow. you know, stainless steel knives to old uh, uh um, carbon knives to uh, uh bottle openers to p- pots and pans and it was really kind of one of these great finds that uh, I, I think professional professional chefs go to uh that's not overly priced and it's just you know where everyday cooks would go family you know you know uh home cooks would go but also the professionals would go so it was kind of a nice little addition there
1: i i assume you had to pack the knives pretty clear cleanly, and uh Carefully to get through airport security. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. Put them in the suitcase. That goes in the check luggage. Yeah, right, exactly. In the check line. <laughs> Along yeah. with the, the pots and pans. Right, right. <laughs> I assume you didn't pick up any you know, giant heavy cast iron. Foil. Oh, you I wanted to. I wanted to. Back France.
0: <laughs> I wanted to. <laughs> so so
1: is it is it springtime in Paris yet?
0: Oh, you know what? It was... I, I, the only time I've been to y- Europe uh, is, is spring or summer, maybe fall. This is the first time I've gone uh, to, to uh, central northern Europe in winter. And for two days, we had lightly falling snow. And it was actually kind of a romantic... Uh, uh, time, uh, albeit I was by myself, but uh, but to see Snow, you know, walking these these beautiful streets of Paris, and not you know not when when one would think with you know like with shirts or a little sweater over your neck on your shoulder, but wearing heavy coats. You know, it got dark early. It was overcast, but it was snowing. I I, I felt for a little while on the set of La Boheme. <laughs>
1: yeah, I imagine so. Uh, I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, and right now my co-host, Mark Rotella, is giving a report from the Paris Cookbook Fair. So were there any particular books that you noticed that you wanted to mention? Because uh, it sounds like you saw some things that Americans mm-hmm. might not be as aware of.
0: One thing I noticed that... I was surprised, so on our bestseller list, the best selling book last year was Ina Gardens foolproof, and that sold about four hundred four hundred fifty four hundred thousand copies in this country. I was fully suspecting that books in Europe with a much smaller you know population with each country a fraction of the u s has would sell far, far fewer books. But, I, as I went to the Belgium booth, there was one um, one chef, Joran Meus who 's this big Belgian TV personality, and this is in a country of eleven million people, and he sold in one year five hundred thousand books. Wow, and
1: that's that's two, 11 million people, like including children. So this is basically every adult in the country. Yes, owns a copy of his book.
0: It, it came down to almost exactly. It's really wow. amazing. I couldn't believe it. And so he he had a show uh, there, a, a cook demonstration, and, and in you know I, I guess uh, Dutch uh, is his first language, French is second, and English is third. And he did a really wonderful presentation. He had a really um, you know, amiable personality. He was, um, approachable. He had a really, a, a great way with cooking and demonstrating. And this is something that, that might be appropriate for, or, or, you know, might be interest of interest to American audiences and cooking, you know, Belgian food, which is much more than, um, you know, waffles and, uh, <laughs> fries and mussels, even though the mussels and, uh, frites are wonderful. But what was also interesting is when you look at the sales of that country, so you think uh, 11 million people, he is publishing this book, but it's only been released in Dutch. Only half the country speaks Dutch, so though that, that brings it down to about 6 million people are buying 500,000 books it's a pretty big number especially considering like you know over the last year of all four of his books he sold a million books Mm -hmm. uh and and so this was kind of an eye-opening experience to see how well cookbook sales could do out there and and it's not the only country the UK as we know has a big cookbook market Germany has one I think to a lesser degree France and Italy uh but but even then there's a curiosity about uh international books but the books that sell there are maybe French home cooking in France and Italian home cooking in Italy, because, as I mentioned before with the rest of the world, everyone is just too busy to cook for themselves uh, or or has been and and in some ways, their their mothers or fathers have not uh, passed along this tradition because sure. they themselves are working, so there's no time to do it. So now there's this curiosity to to explore their own cultural cuisine. So at at this cookbook fair, I, I should also mention there are uh, it, the whole festival ends with an awards ceremony, and you have. I think hundreds, it seems, you know, 100 nominees in 50 different categories, well, 100 nominees total for the various awards various cookbook awards various book awards various TV show awards and so the entire festival culminates in this this three or four four hour long gala Mm -hmm. where the International Cookbook Award or the Paris Cookbook Award is given out
1: that sounds pretty incredible Mark thank you so much for taking us to Paris with you
0: oh thank you for letting me talk about it
1: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and that's it for today's show I'm Rose Fox and
0: I'm Mark Rotella
1: you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio if you want to hear your your question on the air next week just email it to pw radio at publishers or tweet it at pub Weekly radio that's pub wkly radio on twitter uh, we also love to hear if you have any suggestions for authors you'd like us to feature or books that you'd like us to talk about we're here for you tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM book radio channel 80 thanks for listening
0: thanks for listening
2: You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.